Oh, yeah. I got to get here. Kinks. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Geology on the Rocks, your one-stop audio shop for all things rocks and rocking out. A brief overview of this evening's episode will include the intros and hellos, followed by a triple junction and new news. Our main discussion will dive into all things banded iron formations, and I'm excited about this because it blew my mind. And then between the bars of our main discussion, we present to you another Mineral Minute, and before signing off, we'll close things out with another That Freaking Rocks. That freaking rocks. That does. <laughs> so a big thank you to all of our listeners out there for allowing us to be played between your earballs and for sp- spending your time with us each week. If you would like to reach out to us, whether it be for episode ideas, much like this one, I can say that. <laughs> I left it in. Answers your wanting questions or simply to tell us about all the times we were wrong. You can reach us at geologyotr at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram, geology on the rocks podcast. <laughs> I don't know what that was. <laughs> well, it looks like things are squared away over here. So without further ado to all of you over there, I am your host, James the Geologist. And I'm Brian Baggett. And this is Geology, Geology on, on the Rocks. Rocks. Hey, man. Hey. Episode 40. Oh, man. It's finally. We're I mean, over the hill. We're over. Well, yeah. Yeah. Dude, I, I don't ever want to turn 40. Mm-hmm. I think. I mean, that, I hope we do. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like I'm getting. I'm rapidly approaching. Uh, yeah. mm, I'm but like, I don't a, feel like I, I still feel like I'm 20 something, you know? Yeah. But, but so do my parents who are oh. at 70 plus. I mean, if you can still have fun. Yeah. I, I feel active, like, you know, I feel like age, well, it is a number and it, it is a scarcity <laughs> as you get older. Yeah. I do feel like a lot of it too, right. Is mentally like how old do you, I guess, feel, um, act, feel, see yourself as. I feel like I, I feel like I'm 25. Mm-hmm. Now I act a lot older cause kids in career and all see, that. So. I, I feel like I'm the opposite. Really? <laughs> I might, I, I think some of my actions I act like a 25 year old, but I definitely feel <laughs> Like, right. So yeah. you're, you coined, I don't know if you coined it, but the bang over. Yeah. Dude, that's the thing. So that's that it. show last Saturday, like I was teaching in class and I was just like, oh, yeah, my back, you get it more on your was, back, like, I lower, get it on my neck. like lower back. Yeah. Well, I, I get that too. But yeah. my lower back, I was just like, man, I, I'm either going to have to start working out or stretching before a show. <laughs> just geology <be>. yoga. <laughs> yeah. Dude, <laughs> dude, yoga is hard. Oh yeah. I know. It's hard. no joke. And it's, that's like, that's, I think the key to you. You just stay active and like stretching is one of the most important things. Yeah. And uh, we we stay stretched mentally by doing this podcast. We do. And we're going to talk about some really old stuff today. Yeah. Even, we, don't, we may not feel really old, but we're going to talk about some super yeah. old Yeah. Well, I feel like a Biff. I might be a Biff. <laughs> <laughs> a Brian, I'd like. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, 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 <laughs> there's got to be something there. All right. I'm, I'm going to make Biff shirts. So... Well, cheers. cheers. We're drinking. I got another bottle of that proper 12 yeah, because I like it was, that. It was, it was smooth. Oh yeah. But for the 50, we're going to do something big, but moving on, I guess a little bit of triple junction, Yeah. Uh, a little 
fanfare because I feel like we have neglected oh, yeah. that. That's so. right. Yeah, we have a few. Um, I'll start. So we have a shout out to Kevin from Australia. Yeah. Good I might. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to pretend to do that. Although I do watch the little kids show Bluey and it's like all these Australian. Oh, yeah. 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 Awesome. No, Mike. Yeah. I like that, yeah, too. It's good. like I'm like, oh, OK. That, <laughs> I learned that uh, a toilet, like a slang word is a dunny. A dunny. Yeah. Huh. So. Let us know if we're I mean, because yeah, you, maybe you, this... you bash us on our Australian <laughs> accent, Kevin. <laughs> Please. <laughs> he does. He writes yeah. those messages being like, that is terrible. <laughs> but Australia. we do, you know, uh, he's like, that is just <laughs> god awful. Uh, we do appreciate the messages. Thank yeah. You. And I have a special shout out, Brian, if you don't mind. So I don't know. I posted it on mine, but we had, I guess I met an actual listener wow. <laughs> last week. One yeah. in the flesh. Yeah. And uh, so a shout out to Carly. Woohoo. It, it Woo. made my day and yeah. uh, we might have something special with that. So yeah. uh, future um, for, for foreshadowing. I don't yeah. know if we want to break the news right now or maybe just wait till next week. Let's, let's wait, wait till next yeah. week. Yeah. So we have news. Yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, Ashley Davis is a new listener. So yeah. howdy, Ashley. Thank you for, uh, you know, tuning in. Yeah. 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 And uh, hopefully the, the messages that we send back to y'all make it to y'all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but anyways, and then just a general shout out to all of our listeners. Uh, you make it so much more betters. Uh, English. <laughs> but anyways, you, <laughs> I didn't do it. I didn't do it in Australia. See, would you say like Australians? Englishes. Englishes. I don't, I don't know. Eng no, I'm not gonna. What? Man, so unless you've been living under a freaking rock, so Which? let me get to here to a little bit of new, new music. The Honga Tonga volcanic yeah. eruption. Wow. So I, this thing absolutely like, mesmerized me. So what was it? A little bit, it was last week, right? And then I started seeing on Twitter, it's like, oh, we're under a tsunami warning. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what? Yeah. I was like, what? And then all this, uh, like our news feed, my Twitter news feed, it just all started like blowing up. And sometimes I do forget <laughs> that we're geologists. So when I talk <laughs> to other people about it, they're like, what are you talking about? Oh yeah. Like the, like no one, I was just like, this is like huge. This is like only this. It, it seemed like that's the only thing that was like on yeah, my, any of the feeds because this was just this massive. So if you don't know, spoiler alert, just look at Twitter, look yeah. up Tonga <laughs> Island volcanic eruption because this thing quite literally shook the entire world. Yeah, it did. Yeah. And so so NASA, they have an estimate of the power of that eruption that took place. Basically, it means that the explosive force, it was more than 500 times as powerful as the nuclear drop, uh, bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Dude, that I dude. <laughs> And then some are saying that, uh, so there's this organization that I guess monitors nuclear tests like yeah. for that. And they think that this is a conservative estimate on just wow. like how powerful it was. But yeah, so the, the blast, it was heard as far away as Alaska and was probably <laughs> one of the loudest events to occur on earth in over a century. And I, I, I'm, you know, reading that it's probably like one of the loudest things that's ever been recorded. Like, yeah. it, dude. For yeah, scale, I wonder why they say a century. I mean, I know, but I because I, I think they they maybe perhaps like Pinatubo when it erupted. Oh, okay. I think in 1880s. I don't know. So it appeared it that was the largest eruption in the world um, in three decades. Yeah. Um. So it, but it will likely not have a temporary cooling effect on the global global climate. So that was that was a lot of the conversations you'd see online. Like how how is this going to affect climate when? We're yeah, already... because you would think that with it being such a massive eruption, yeah. that it would have spewed out a lot of 
of ash, but it it it, it didn't really. Yeah, it, even there and was I'm, a lot of ash. And I it mean, went it thirty did, miles. Up. Yeah, it did. But I, I mean, had it have been not subaqueous, right? Like, yeah. I wonder what that would have done, man. Because people have asked me that they're like, "Well, is this going to change climate?" I'm like, "I don't know." Yeah, I think so. But because there yeah. is a cooling effect due to the the yeah. SO two usually, and it acts like kind of the opposite of a greenhouse gas. Where yeah, it, it blocks the incoming radiation. Yeah, so but like I think the the the, so- the shock wave actually produced by the explosion as well as the unusual nature of the tsunamis it generated mm-hmm. but tsunamis yeah. they were detected not just in the pacific but in the atlantic and then get this That's like crazy. it's crazy to think that they were actually tsunami warmings in the caribbean and the mediterranean the, yeah that's that's wild and then really the weird thing about it too was that it, it generated tsunamis of roughly the same size as the local ones so around it so right so they're over the the many hours yeah. of it like in japan chile and the west coast of the united states it eventually generated small tsunamis in other basins elsewhere it's yeah nuts. yeah and, and so as it traveled through the atmosphere, the pressure wave, it may have had an effect on the ocean, right? Like, yeah. I guess that oscillation. Yeah, because then I got to stop. Hold on. <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice sound. Let's put that I do that. No, pedal. it's terrible to edit out. You can't, you can't, <laughs> yeah. it, it cuts through everything because it's because you're talking, oh, you're but right, mine's yeah. doing this in the background with it. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So the, the power of the eruption, right, it's it's related to its location. So I think that if we've seen pictures of it, like you, there was that island, but it had a caldera just off to the, it was like yeah. huge, massive. But anyways, it's about 500 feet underwater. So I guess what the thinking is behind it is that when that super hot molten magma, lava, whatever, it's close enough to be lava, right? Yeah. yeah. So, but it, it hit the seawater and that water, I guess kind of when you think of geysers, but it instantly flashed into steam, expanding that explosion many times over. So had it been much deeper, right? So I think that really would have, uh, the pressures of that overburden of the water might have dampened that explosion. But I guess it was really in that, I guess, Goldilocks zone. Yeah. And I think it also has to do with like, you'll have the heat build up. So you're, you're building the magma room, right? Yeah. So then once it, once you have the eruption, because they had the, the, a pretty major one Friday, right? Yeah. So I mean, it's been erupting. Saturday, it was like, it had already hit. And so when the, when you include, like, think about like, thermoclines like back in petrology with like how you even crystallizing yeah and and like the with volcanics it basically creates this volatile reaction Mm -hmm. and so that's what i think happened is you had all that heat hitting the cooler ocean water and those two don't mix right (laughs) so it it created this massive blast yeah and that blast actually it sent shockwaves into the atmosphere right so it was like the one of the largest again detected ever so i think satellites showed that the waves reached far beyond the stratosphere right so it's so it was this this thing went up like 60 miles and it propagated outward around the world at almost 600 miles per hour <laughs> yeah so it, like a freaking jet yeah, yeah. right so it, like yeah. it, the, basically it displaced I, I guess the huge amounts of outward and upward um high into the atmosphere so it's this kind of like oscillating high and low pressure mm-hmm. too and we were talking a little bit about about this before the show was the uh how that initial shock wave how it interfered but it went around like twice and they're still kind of yeah you can Detecting it. it in the yeah. So, anyways, I'm excited about uh, future publications yeah, when it comes to yeah. all this. So, I was, I was like, Angela, look, there's a geophysicist like, talking about it. I'm like, oh, yeah. And there's there's something else. Like, someone's like a tsunami waves. Like, those are only like four feet. I'm like, yeah, four feet. Like, of you have that. I was watching some of the like the the waves coming in on Tonga, uh-huh. and it was like, dude, like it was just wiping everything out. Oh like, yeah, you don't need like a like hundred foot tall wave to cause massive damage. No, I don't think like water is powerful. So I think next week when we talk about geomorphology, we're going to talk about how just, dude, like, so what they say is like, turn around, don't drown. Like even in like a a foot full
full of yeah. like not even a foot full like like it will sweep oh yeah roads and everything away so yeah no yeah. i always have conversations with my kid he thinks tsunamis are kind of like this uh like giant yeah. swell and i i feel like that is a that's what everyone thinks of, associates you know? it with yeah. too but yeah no it's these kind of just building up yeah. and like these surges that come they're like bam bam, bam. but but you know it was weird for that. I, I know we probably need to get off this, but how large of an eruption that was, but you didn't see larger tsunami waves created like you would like whenever you had that earthquake in 2011 that yeah. wiped out Japan. Yeah. Like, right. But that's displacing water, I guess, in a little bit of a different way. This it was is, like more yeah. concussive. I don't know. But it was weird that the, the waves were the same height all throughout <laughs> the world. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, all right. Well, on to Biff. Biff. Biffs. Biffs. The spiffy Biffs. <laughs> like, right. So um, today, I guess for this evening's episode, we're going to be talking um, about, again, the banded iron formations, what they are, where do they come from, where do they go, where do they come from, <laughs> yeah. Cotton Eye Joe. <laughs> I said that in my class the other Did day. Did you really? And I was met with blank stares. <laughs> They were like, what is this guy talking about? That is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So um, we'll talk about, is there any geological significance to them? What do they tell us? Or what do we think that they, what they think they told us? <laughs> so I think a lot of this episode too was challenging our convention of how we thought about the Biffs being created. So I think this is going to be a unique yeah. episode in our understanding, right? I, I think so. And I, I have a confession. Okay. So when I first heard of Biffs, I was like, these are the most boring fucking rocks. Like the, I just... Just always thought they were so boring. Yeah. I'm mean, like, and I honestly didn't. I was like, I'm talking like way back. Yeah. You know, I have some kind of, you know, appreciation for them now, but they are just kind of like, Ugh. yeah, like it's not that cool. Like I would not probably collect them, but now yeah, I'm like, holy crap, these things are awesome. And it shows that like, you know, we thought that they were just kind of a, it was a pretty straightforward answer of how, I mean, that's what we were taught. Right. Yeah. But it shows you the geology and, you know, the history of the earth is way more complicated <laughs> than what you can read in your 1301 textbook or something you know? and and so much more man like yeah. it's it, it blew my mind just and we're gonna take you a little bit through um i guess the journey and the discovery and kind of just challenging the old school of thought versus kind of this new school of thought so um yeah so i think the heart of the issue lies in the shadow of earth's primitive atmosphere brian so i i recently talked about this in my class but every time i i think that really again like we just said i think we're gonna have an easy nice, easy topic, <laughs> the, the more and more you read about it and reflect on your own assumptions, it's it's just so freaking complicated. Yeah. And it could be a number of different things at the same time. And I think like that's what we always come back to. And just like this conversation that we're having tonight, this is just going to go in a direction that it kind of took us. And by no, <laughs> by no means is this a, a full discussion no. of all <laughs> of the, the nuances that go into it, because there's just too much. We could go into the, the yeah. geochemistry, we go into like all and, this. And we don't know enough yeah <laughs> and that too we're, yeah. we're limited by our own limitations of Absolutely. knowledge so but we will do our best to be thorough but not get lost in the weeds of this seemingly simple topic yeah it just goes to show that geology and the history of the earth it's it's rather complicated and i think that is really the understatement of the year but agree 100 yeah. <laughs> percent. so so okay to start i think we should just begin just let's just start with earth's primitive atmosphere okay yeah sounds good um i'll say the the primitive atmosphere of the 
the earth, it's nothing what it is today. Right. right? Um, don't try to apply what we're talking about with today's atmosphere. Early on, it was probably made up of carbon dioxide, nitrogen, water vapor, laced with some of that good good, uh, mm. such as methane, ammonia, sulfur dioxide, hydrogen sulfide, and uh, why don't we just throw some hydrochloric acid in here too? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you imagine just, yeah, it's not the, the, the effervescent part. It's like hydrochloric acid in yeah. the atmosphere. Yeah. And yet, and, and then the thing that, that was missing that I'm pretty sure that we're all familiar with. Dun, dun, dun. And that thing missing is oxygen, which Oof. I say is really that good good if you ask me, Brian. Uh, I would, I would yeah, agree. Yeah, the O2. <laughs> so if you look in just about any insert geo course textbook, you'll find a story that goes something like this. So four billion uh, years ago. Why are you not wrapping this? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I, it felt like you were about to do like the. Something about this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I uh, know I don't know how to rap. I feel like it's a to get off topic, but I if I'm Biff the rapper. But anyway, <laughs> dude, I feel oh, like nice. rapping is such an art form it that is, is underappreciated. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so the story goes something like this: four billion years. No, okay, four billion years ago, the, the Earth. Remember the difference being between when we say billions, the two L's, right? The yeah, million yeah. and a billion. And then the atmosphere was a deadly mixture of gases that spewed from the Earth's innards, mm. aka volcanoes. What we talked about earlier, and all the gases you previously mentioned were being spewed out. So this uniformitarianism, we can yeah. kind of, the same things were coming out. As you know, as water vapor rises, it, it undergoes condensation. So it, it'll fall precipitation in the form of rain. Yeah. We know this stuff. But yeah, it, it basically gave birth to the first oceans. It's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> but these, they became these huge, vast reservoirs with dissolved iron, yeah. which was pumped through hydrothermal vents from the ocean floor. See, it's been so long since we've heard this story that we're stumbling telling the story of the, the, uh, the simulator. So yeah. then seemingly out of nowhere, about 2.7 billion years ago, an unlikely hero came bursting onto the scene, which was Captain Cyanobacteria. <laughs> yeah. So they've been called the most self-sufficient organisms on the planet because of the dual superpower of being able to, you know, both photosynthesize and fix nitrogen. Scientists, they they typically agree that cyanobacteria were the first organisms to carry out oxygenic photosynthesis. Um, this is one type of photosynthesis where oxygen is the waste product and oxygen is produced when a water molecule split and it provides an electron for the chemical reactions involved in the photosynthesis. So it's really the, the C6H12O6 for the wind. Yeah. The, that's the glucose. But then, but it's in between there, the electrons, uh, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's so the, the mighty cyanobacteria began pumping and bubbling out this thing called oxygen into the atmosphere and shallow waters. So what you see at first really is oxygen building up gradually in the atmosphere, but then around 2.5 billion years ago, there was a sudden spike upward, traditionally yep. called the GOE, a great <laughs> oxidation event. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the spike in oxygen spelled the end for the predominant life forms of the anaerobes. So the things that don't breathe oxygen or use oxygen for yeah. um, their 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 cellular, their or life. I guess the, the metabolism, yeah. if you will. Oh, that's, that's the right word. Yeah, yeah so anaerobes, they, they didn't adapt and overcome by finding refuge in sediments or in the deep ocean or any other airless environment. Yeah, oxygen really is that good good mm, i love missing that good good mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> soon, soon. Uh, then simultaneously, contemporaneously. That's a good word. Yeah. Oh, that's a T, it's, it's a pretty, pretty word. It I is. Like it's it. rounded. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, at the same time, iron began precipitating out of the oceans. It formed rocks peculiar to this period called banded iron formations or the biff, yeah. as you will. Yeah, if you the biffs. So biffs are formations that we know of are that are that consist of alternating layers of gray and reddish rock that were created episodically uh, from about three billion years ago until about one point eight billion years ago. Yeah. Then, just as magically as they appeared, they were almost never formed again. So I think a little they they formed <laughs> and then there was this little hiatus and then you had a snowball earth and yeah. then they started. Then they just disappeared. Yeah. So that is the story that we've been told. That is it, that it was just these bacteria and iron from rocks having babies that are biffs. Yeah, biffs, <laughs> biffs. Uh, so, okay, so, but we're going to continue with this tale as old as time. Tale as old as time. I love that song. I really do. Brian and the James. <laughs> so wait, am I, am I no, Belle? I'm I Belle and you're the beast. Yeah. 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 Do you see this beard? Yeah. Dude, I'm growing it out. Like I, I have to have this resolve to not cut it or <laughs> shave it. Yeah. I mean, you're pretty much there. Another month and it's going to be like a full. No, but I like I wanted to just this part so I can do the Viking. Um, oh, good. Yeah. Be, you can be a thing. dwarf. Not a dwarf. A Viking. <laughs> I only talk in Middle Earth. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did you see that there's a new. Uh, oh, yeah. Have you already watched it? The trailer. Is it? Is it, is it not released yet? No, it's in September. What's it called? Like the Rings of Power. Rings so of Power. The second okay. Age. Okay. Instead of third. Yeah. All right. We can talk about that another time. Okay. So yeah, iron was said to be swept from the oceans by increasing levels of that good, good. <laughs> Start cracking me up that yeah. good, good. <laughs> but, you know, and then we wait and we wait and we wait. Wait. What? Wait for it. Waiting. Wait for it. I'm waiting another <laughs> two billion years. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're saying. So after the great oxygen oxygenation event, multicellular life forms finally, finally, they finally showed up to the ball and made an appearance. Yeah. Curious indeed. So from here we see that you know, the first metazoans, as they're called, we see them. And then they are these like little bizarre looking fossils named the Idiocaran yeah. fauna. So uh, I, I, I know I'm pretty sure Kevin's going to have something to say about that. Cause they're yeah, in Australia. Australia. Yeah. He sent us, I think a link or something. Mm. I don't know. It was pretty cool, but yeah, they, I, and I do think that the Idiocara, oh, yeah. they, they deserve their own episode in the future. Just I'm surprised we haven't done that yet. Well, cause I mean, cause we're so many other things. To yeah. Um, but so, so long story short, the assumption was um, oxygen levels were finally high enough to support something more like, or more than. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. No, God. Dang it. <laughs> 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 oh. <laughs> okay. I just saw that, dude. It took me aback. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> okay, so long story short, the assumption was oxygen levels, they're finally high enough to so support something more than a single-celled organism <laughs> in lonely solitude. <laughs> so this story has holes in it bigger than my doo-doo maker. <laughs> of course there is. <laughs> 
But yeah, okay, okay. So, but I, I, I do think that you're on to something there, Mr. Braggins. <laughs> but from what you were saying, so I do think there are, there were some looming questions that arose, such as why did oxygen levels spike 2.5 billion years ago? And then really how much oxygen was there in the atmosphere, really? And then why are banded iron formations made of layers of only a few centimeters thick? And then why did they stop forming so abruptly, right? So if the oceans were oxygenated 2.5 billion years ago, why did multicellular life really delay its appearance for another, again, 2 billion years? (laughs) So if it was oxygenated, you think that it's kind of like this weird thing. So there's kind of like this, ah, what's going on? And did all these changes really take place at pretty much the same time, or as you said, contemporaneously, everywhere on Earth? Yeah. Like, right, so... I mean, all this is, these are major questions. I mean, damn it, we got questions about this. <laughs> and damn it, we want answers. Yeah. Damn it. Yeah, so, I mean, there's been an overall shift in geologists' understanding of BIFs that we really wanted to discuss. Right, right. And one of those was the oversimplification of Captain Cyanobacteria creating mm-hmm. oxygen. And that oxygen byproduct combined, you know, really, you know, I think we thought of it as like it it kind of dissolved iron ions to form the iron oxides in an oversimplified re- stated way, iron plus oxygen <laughs> equals iron oxides. But yeah. to, to state the more correct way, I couldn't just leave it at that. It's the iron first has to form iron hydroxide, so FeOH2, and then subsequent reactions will eventually lead to hematite and magnetite formation. So yeah. just so you're aware out there. Yeah. And from there, the old way of thinking was, you know, the presence of the iron pore bands could be produced by either you know, a local depletion of iron due to lo- lower activity of the hydrothermal vent. Mm-hmm. or the terrestrial weathering, uh, the shedding of sediments, or two, the die-off of cyanobacteria was due to excess oxygen production. So basically they would have uh, poisoned themselves, if yeah. you will. So yeah, I, I, and I think this explanation is just, I guess, too tidy or too neat of an explanation of really how, you know, we're always taught like the earth systems, they're interrelated. Yeah. And then we can see here in this little explanation that the evolutionary adaptations, such as your oxygenic, oxygenic photosynthesis can have a profound effect on all of them. However, you know, it is again old and outdated and it's probably flat out wrong. Probably. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. After reading all this, I'm like, yeah, it's too, it doesn't, it doesn't, it starts to fall apart. Yeah, it does. Like your duty maker. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was a terrible, like, (laughs) Um, yeah. So a a few challenging aspects of that old story of the Biffs, it doesn't capture, you know, while they're very old, it doesn't account for them possibly have being altered, which we know that they are. Yeah. Um, They're some of them are folded right? Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, iron oxide can be produced without the presence of O2. And there's many types of photosynthesis for starters. Yeah. So that's exactly right. 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 So, and also not to mention like ferric and ferrous iron. So we, I don't even know if we're going to get into that today. I possibly, possibly. I think so. I think so. But right. So, so physical and chemical changes to rock could have occurred due to the processes of diagenesis or sedimentary rock formation, fluid flow and metamorphism, right? Because you were saying that they were, they were folded. Um, So during diagenesis, the sedimentary layers are compacted and dewatering will begin to occur at that point. So really as these fluids begin flowing through these layers, they may uh, dissolve the silica, leaving behind iron compounds. And then really what we're seeing is the the heat of the metamorphism. So um, we're getting up to that 400 degrees Celsius range can really cause these iron silicates and carbonates to become magnetite. Mm. And then lower heat, so your, you know, uh, lower grade metamorphism around 200 to 300 degrees plus 
water will have the same effect because right the the water yeah. decreases anyways so many biffs have fold as you as you mentioned suggesting regional metamorphic events were going on so it could yeah. be like <clears throat> any of these things causing them yeah i mean you're you're in underwater basins right so like they're usually active margins too right so you expect something <laughs> to be happening but it's not static yeah so let's talk a little bit you know so Evaluation of chert nodules in BIFs, that's really led to new insight. So as you know, chert's resistant to fluid. Right. And so it's going to preserve its original cryptocrystalline quartz okay. matrix. Yeah. And researchers, they found that greenolite, and that's, it's an iron silicate. That's probably the most likely initial mineral in BIFs from Australia and South Africa. Magnetite, interestingly, it'll cut across other grains, which leads to the conclusion that it's actually a replacement product of the greenolite. Yeah. So using like even just like uh, some of these context clues it's cut across so we can even at the smaller level see that yeah. oh it's a secondary process yeah so, I, I mean just phew, these people oh, uh, yeah. like that does the research but in, <laughs> yeah, like in thin sections they see it cut it's right. not the yeah so more information on that I suggest checking out making magnetite late again so which is evidence for widespread magnetite growth by thermal decomposition of siderite and Hammersley banded iron formations from a 2018 paper and greenolite precipitation linked to the deposition of banded iron formations downslope from late Archaean carbonate platform from a 2017 paper by Rasmussen and Muling. So that's kind of where we got that information from. They did studies on that. So, but then let's get to the the, the interesting case of oxygen compounds being formed without the presence of <laughs> oxygen, the yeah. molecules of O2. Like yeah. that that blew my mind. I, know. I always we always thought like it became oxygenated, it it's, started precipitating out, and that's because of the simplified equation we always get like in like and we get that with any chemical weathering right and yeah. like in crystallization iron silicates fe3 si2 o5 oh4 okay yeah, so that's, yeah 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 just pulling it out you know just pull it, you're so good <laughs> it's like you're reading it from a screen Brian. yeah i mean <laughs> Maybe <laughs> yeah. in carbonates. So uh, this is actually siderite, FeCO3. Yep. Right. We'll lose a, a silicon or a carbon atom during metamorphism and heat flow. And that produces iron oxides, uh, like basically magnetite and hematite. Yeah. Okay. So I know we don't want to just like switch gears on you, but we're just going to brief overview right now. But the, you mentioned, or I mentioned, I can't remember the, the, the many types of photosynthesis. Oh, yeah. And I know we talked about Captain Cyanobacteria bursting on the <laughs> scene, but why is that really important to our discussion? So I, I I do feel like this one had a lot to do with it, but oxygenic photosynthesis uses energy from light to remove an electron from the light harvesting pigment within okay, these uh, yeah. organisms, right? So then the, the electron powers the light reactions and must be replaced, that, that electron. So a water molecule then split to replace that electron in oxygen is produced as a byproduct, and then cyanobacteria, um, we have to keep in mind at the time, are, were the only bacteria that uses this process. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's like a really important note, especially for this story in BIFs, but also the anoxygenic photosynthesis, it's going to be the most ancient type of photosynthesis. Yeah. So like even just hearing this, yeah. I was like <laughs> under the assumption like, oh, photosynthesis, what do you mean? There's different types of photosynthesis. Yeah, it's like I must have forgotten a lot. From yeah, biology. Right. I don't remember, I guess. But yeah, so it's it's still used by a diverse range of bacteria and archaea living in lakes, hot springs, soil. A perfect example, let's talk about the Grand Prismatic Springs in Yellowstone, right? Yeah, dude. That concent the concentric 
rings, the colors, right? They're different biozonations of bacteria. And, and, you know, basically their process is a photosynthesis. None of the electron donors produce oxygen as a byproduct. Uh, so it's, it's this anoxygenic process. Do you want to hear a fun story? Yes. I think that me and the people downstairs, yeah. are, we're actually thinking of doing a yellow, our family vacation to uh, oh, Yellowstone man. and going to Grand Prismatic Springs. Dang. Yeah. That's on my list. I, I'm very jealous. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't realize that too, like the, the intensity of the colors varies with the seasons. So the, oh. during the summer months when there's more light, they're more vibrant. I guess it makes sense. Yeah. Wow. If, that it photosynthesizes. Yeah. <laughs> but so how this works back to what you were saying, Brian, is that the, the ferrous iron FE2 oh, yeah. plus was the most efficient of these systems and probably dominated in the early Archaean. And when really, when Captain Cyanobacteria came onto the scene, oxidation of that ferrous iron caused precipitation of ferric iron, yeah. which is the Fe3 plus compound. So this type of photosynthesis is observed in some deep lakes today. And I and I think it's in New York that you can see this. It's like this pink stuff, but it's called photoferrotrophy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it, that that word is so funny. Yeah, the photoferrotrophy. Yeah, it's like man. Do you think it would be like that? Ferrotrophy or ferrotrophy? No. Photo ferrotrophy. I think that's it. I would sound that sounds cooler it sounds than worse, than, than like photo ferrotrophy. <laughs> hey, you know that photo fer trophy? Hey, did you win that ferro trophy? It's that lot photo. Hey, no one can knock our Texan. Accents. I don't know. I I, I think would associate pretty, that as like a. I would associate that more with like people from Arkansas. Like no offense to Arkansas listeners or Georgia. Georgia's more of the. It slow, is slow. Like that's the southern like <laughs> like. In Texas, we have more of a draw and we talk real fast, but I, but I, I do feel, uh, yeah, but I, there's a difference. Believe you me. Believe you me. Jeez. Ugh. I gotta get out of here. Not out of here. Texas. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to get back to this. Uh, so at present, there's groups of scientists probably right now still arguing, you know, yeah. while we're presenting what we think we know, they're still arguing about this. So this could be, our episode could be obsolete in another year. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but they're arguing for both, you know, a biological and abiotic origin of BIFs. Neither group, though, they neither of them think that cyanobacteria and oxygen were important. So let that <laughs> sink in from what. <laughs> yeah. Basically, you know, opposite of what we were taught, uh, you know, but this is particularly in the early and middle phases of BIF deposition. Yeah. And so I think we were talking a little bit about this before the show. And one of the problems that arises due to scientists, they don't have dense enough data. Right. Um, and so they can't recognize some of the spatial variations in Earth's geochemical past. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that, and that, and because using geochemical proxies to interpret <laughs> billions of years ago is also pretty effing hard to <laughs> interpret with, uh, you know, that yeah. certainty that, that we like to see in the data. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we see is that, you know, this older story really started to fall apart in the late 90s, 1990s, when, you know, newer research came out. Which it usually do. Right. That's just the way science do. Yeah. Yeah. In so the research, it was suggesting that sulfur compounds had played a major role in the transformation of Earth's early chemistry, especially uh, uh, the ocean, ocean chemistry. Yeah. Which led to the idea that the great, the, the GOI. GOI. <laughs> GOI, the Go? great oxygenation event, it actually took place in two steps. And, you know, that it, it was sulfides rather than oxygen oxygen that removed the iron from deep water o ocean water which makes me think of pyrite but maybe we'll get there yeah but like just 
when we think of the great oxidation, yeah, and then we're just like, oh no, but it was the the sulfur yeah. it's being introduced that. Anyway, so I think this shows how science is never static and we can always really improve the limits of what we know or even think about things, I think in general. So like, I, I believe it was 1998 and I just wish I was a geologist back when I was um, in ninth grade. So that would have been 98, I, yeah, 98, 99, ninth grade to be part of the, the change in thinking but, you know, yeah. I guess we'll just talk about it on this episode too. Um, right. It's almost as good, I, yeah, think. So, I think. so. Except for we would have been younger. Like, could you imagine? What if we cared about? If you were, ge- like, if you could know, <laughs> like, just, yeah, you were a geologist. Like, you were a Doogie Howser. You were a doctor. <laughs> at, oh, like, yeah. 10 years old. You're just like a... a <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So it, anyways, so it, it showed that the, the first rise in oxygen caused oxidative weathering of rocks on land that delivered sulfates to the ocean through rivers and streams, right? So, mm-hmm. and then in the ocean, sulfate reducing bacteria converted the sulfates to sulfide to gain the energy they needed for their daily housekeeping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so what's happening is that, you know, the dissolved iron combined with it causing it to precipitate out of solution, right? Yeah. Um, and then during the second later stage, enough oxygen is generated to sweep the deep ocean of the toxic sulfides. Right. And so there's the new era ushered in, a biologic innovation that we were talking about, like the bizarre idiocarian fauna. Right, right. And these transitions, I think what we're, we're seeing is that they're still being discussed as changes in the bulk ocean chemistry. So mm-hmm. just in the way that describe differences from one anoxic chemistry condition to another. So however, I, I think that, the, that there's really been this idea pushed that that the sulfitic waters protruded into the ocean only in narrow wedges along the shoreline of ancient continents. And I believe this research was done by uh, Simon Poulton of the University Mm. of Newcastle in England. Excellent. But so, yeah. So I guess what that means is that the water column, instead of being homogenous, I don't know, I say homogenous. I say, yeah. Um, Yeah. It was actually stratified with different chemistries in different layers. Right, right. So that stratification. So yeah. precisely. So there is now, I believe, enough geochemical evidence to suggest that at least locally, ferrogenous or iron-rich or mm-hmm. even sulfitic, which just means sulfur-rich, conditions persisted throughout the Idiocaran period. So this is quite long after the Great Oxidation event. Yeah, and things were, you know, they're always much more complicated than we initially supposed. So as we mentioned earlier, there's, I'll repeat, you know, there still exists this lack of spatial variation of these zones within different bodies of water. And then the further complications, I think, really arises from the the different interpretations of different geochemical proxies, right? So from physical separation between different ocean basins to the Mm. reworking of sediments after deposition. So, right, it's not just the initial conditions, it's... What happens? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, then the glaring issue simply is the problem of, of low sampling rates, you have to remember that as scientists try to unravel uh, the basically really critical changes in Earth's history, they don't they don't have a hundred different places where they can measure rocks of the same age, <laughs> right? Right. Or yeah. under the same, you know, that are that have been subjected to the same scenario. And yeah, same and conditions. And, right. Right. Yeah, right. Conditions so, good. so we're what we're left with is just a few samples, and as you would guess, that the, the, the natural tendency would be to take your rocks and your data, then try to extrapolate those findings across a broad across the broad, you know, right up 
applying them to situations where it might not be appropriate. So which which I, I get doing, but sometimes trying to force a narrative is not only, it's not really this true scientific, unbiased kind of thinking, right? Yeah. Some, you know, suggest that the only way to, to ring order from the chaos, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Is I to, like that. Ring, yeah. Ring chaos from, ring yeah. order from the chaos. It sounded very poetic. Um, But yeah, so... We had to develop a full three-dimensional model of the Earth, you know, that has enough spatial resolution to wash out the the bad data. So I imagine that really the, the bad data, some of those redox proxies used maybe in the analysis might just be a simple reflection of an unusual deposition context. So, or you could just think of it as maybe like reworking of the proxy after the deposition rather than any real, I guess, significant change in the geochemistry, you know, uh, with that sample. Yeah, weren't you saying something before the show, something about the Amazonian river belts that shows this? Yeah, yeah, I know. That's what I was talking to you about. So that that publication um, by Robert Aller of Stony Brook University, he and his colleagues, they, it goes a little something like the, the Amazon River, if you imagine, dumps organic rich mud into the Atlantic. So, yeah. and at, at really as it's being deposited, the, the organic material is consumed by biological activity. And we know the byproduct of that is it depletes the oxygen, right? So kind of like why algal blooms are bad. Like it's not necessarily the algal blooms, but it's when everything dies, it (laughs) goes to the bottom, bacteria eat it and it eats the oxygen, right? Or it doesn't eat oxygen. It just consumes it it in there. But then what happens when a storm comes through and churns up all that sediment at the bottom? It's going to get reoxygenated and then it's going to get redeposited. So over time, this process happens over and over and over and over again. So it's, it's different, but it's the same. Yeah. So interesting. So you're saying that, you know, basically, by the time the mud becomes sediment, the chemistry is going to be different than, you know, from when it was first deposited. Yeah, the, the the redox indicators for the Amazonian sediments would, I guess, if you were to take a sample of it from this study, it would suggest that they were deposited under anoxic sulfate poor conditions. Yeah, and we know that, you know, that is not the conditions that it's being deposited into. So, <laughs> right, so yeah. it's, the, the is, is it the, the, you know, the oceans now. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's well oxygenated sulfate rich. Yeah. Yeah. The marine waters. Yeah. That's good points. And I think before we go further, because I think we're going to go into a little bit more, I say we um, do a little bit of sponsorship for our beach cleanup and then a little bit of a mineral minute. Yeah. Mineral. Mineral minutes. Mineral. Oh, I love minerals. Mineral. Mineral minutes. You want to mm. Minerals. All right, and this week's Mineral Minute is brought to you by the secondary uranium mineral, uranocercite. Uranocercite has a <laughs> chemical formula of BaUO2, 2PO42, and 10 water. Yeah, so it's got that phosphate into it. So the uranocercite's color is yellow-green yellow to yellow, pale canary yellow in transmitted light with a pearly luster. Uranocercite has a hardness of, wow, two to two and a half and a specific gravity of 3.46. Yeah, so uranocercite is part of the tetragonal crystal system and grows in thin tabular crystals with twin laminae parallel to the 100 and 010 planes. Uranocercite. 
circosite is biaxial negative and will transition to become uniaxial with the accompanying loss of water to the dihydrate. Uranocircite also has moderate surface relief. So fun facts, uranocircite's name reflects its uranium content in its discovery locality of Falkenstein, which means falconstone, which is the Greek for circes, meaning falcon. That is amazing. Stay tuned for next week's mineral natural zippy. <laughs> <laughs> Zippity doo <-dah. laughs> Natural zippyite. Is that a mineral real? minutes? Mineral. <laughs> <laughs> Natural zippyite. Oh, yeah. man. So, yeah. All right. So, on to the back half of the of the podcast here. I just take a second, like, again, so this could have gone a million different ways, and I feel like there's just too much regarding these spiffy biffs, so yeah. maybe just we're going to start riffing Ooh. about the biffs, and we'll just really kind of just see where this leads us. Yeah. I like yeah? to riff. Okay. Yeah. You yeah, like yeah. to riff. I do. Wah, 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 wah. Oh, that's not... It's yeah, not. not yet. Oh, here's. <laughs> nope. Oh, there's riffing. Yeah, there's. Oh, yeah. That's, that's wanking. That's, that's not riffing. That is wanking. Okay, so I guess I will talk about what we do know, and that it's it's geographic distribution. <laughs> I do feel. Yeah. Or like, okay, so it's occurrences. Where does it occur? So um, one of these, so the formations are found worldwide, and I do know that they're found in every continental shield of every continent. Hmm. So it's interesting you made the distinction of continental shield. Yeah. The oldest of all the BIFs, they're going to be associated with greenstone belts, and they have an estimated age of 3.7 to 3.8 billion years old. For example, the Timigami banded iron deposits, they formed over a 50 million period in the Canadian Shield from about, you know, 2.7 to 2.6. Six, eight, seven million years ago. And they reached a thickness of 60 meters, so about 200 feet. Oh, those good old yeah. greenstone belts. So the the name, as you would suspect, like, so just for your yeah. fun facts, comes from the green hue imparted by the color of the metamorphic minerals within the metamorphic mafic rocks. So the, mm, the typical green minerals ones. where the, you know, the the plasticky biotite micas, they transition <laughs> they weather, into chloride. Yeah. Weathering, that's, yeah, they weather to chloride. No, they don't weather, they, 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 well, they do the Metamorphic. But definitely metamorphic. Yeah. So they yeah. turn, they basically, they just uh, yeah. evolve into chloride. Then you have actinolite and other mm -hmm. green amphibolies. Yeah. Some nasty serpentine. Yeah. That Kevin sent us a picture today. Kevin's really? just coming up all like throughout it. this episode. Kevin. Kevin, Kevin. just <laughs> keep doing Kevin. it. <laughs> Kevin. Yeah. So these greenstone belts, they're really, you know, just zones of varying degrees of metamorphosed mafic or ultramafic volcanic sequences, but with associated sedimentary rocks that occurred from, you know, Archean to Proto at cratons between the granitic and nisic bodies. Yeah, and, and like we mentioned before, banded iron formations have been the center of many debates in geology, so especially regarding the early Archaean and Paleo-Proterozoic Earth and its surface environment. So really what's interesting is that BIFs have potential value as proxies for marine chemistry and life at the time of their deposition. So I think we didn't even go into the <laughs> that earlier. But the, there's been detailed reviews of their characteristics and proposed depositional models that are um, really readily available by their limited occurrences in time. So circa 3.8 to 1.8 billion years ago, then again at 750 million years ago and evolving st 
stratigraphic settings through time. Yeah, and so the deposition of glacially associated BIFs, um, so you mentioned that 750 million years ago, it's been, you know, satisfactorily explained as being that great snowball earth event, right? Yeah. The deposition of the older green belt hosted BIFs, um, the, you know, the 3.8 to 2.5 billion years old and the craton margin, that's about like what, 3 to 1.8 billion years ago or billion year old BIFs. Yeah. They're especially before the great oxidation event. It's been much more of a challenge for geologists to explain these. Yeah, no. And then just, I know I'm just going to go on a tangent right here, but yeah. like, so why the the snowball earth, they think that you did start getting all these, uh, this mass like influx, because I think what they think is that the, the glaciers, the whole earth was covered in ice, right? So like just one big glacier. Yeah. But what it did is it like, it pulverized all of the rocks. And yeah. then it, so it provided all this nutrients for the cyanobacteria really to, to do, their uh, thing. do their thing yeah. and evolve. <laughs> so anyways, when we go back to the Biffs, first one challenge faced in pre-Gooey Biffs. Maybe that should be the title, the Gooey Biffs. Oh. So in pre-Great yeah. Oxygenated Earth, banded iron formation deposition is going to relate to the transport of dissolved ferrous iron, Fe2+, in the ocean. So in contrast to today's highly oxygenated oceans, this really, this dissolved ferrous iron transport could have been possible prior to the great oxidation events when Earth's surface environments were generally considered to be anoxic. Right, and I, th I think it's important to mention that a greater abundance of large hydrothermal plumes added, you know, tons of ferrous iron to the early oceans. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, it leads to another problem that's, you know, being able to explain such a mechanism that precipitated that iron. I want to say that the, the general consensus is that really that iron was originally precipitated as ferric, Fe3+, oxyhydroxide following oxidation of that ferrous Fe2 plus iron. So the, the oxidation mechanisms proposed include what UV photo oxidation, there was free oxygen oxygen formed by photosynthetic bacteria and iron oxidizing bacteria. So anoxic photoferrotrophs, as a fun word, and then the microoxic chemolithoautotrophs. <laughs> How about that? I talked about that in my class the other day. So, yeah. uh, which I have to say is probably one of my favorite yeah, words. Yeah, I'll try it. Uh, Chemolithoautotrophs. Yeah, there yeah, you go. Nice. nice. Well, so, you know, now let's break down some of those non-redox processes. Right. The UV photo oxidation of iron, it's shown to be ineffective in the grand scheme of things, right? Um, especially when trying to find meaning of what BIFs can tell us about the early Earth life. Right. Um, and, and, you know, that's been coming to the forefront. It leads us to the hypothesis of the precipitation of iron and biffs by iron oxidizing bacteria, which I want to say is because it can explain the oxidation of iron in completely anoxic environment. Yeah, right. So I, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, right. And I, and I want to say it's supported by laboratory studies of the photoferrotrophs, as well as the fact that the carbonates and biffs have depleted delta carbon 13 values, which is just an isotopic signature that is a measure of the ratio of the carbon 13 and carbon 12. So this really, it's suggesting that the source was organic carbon related to the bacterial life. And really this, this delta carbon 13 varies in time as a function of productivity. So the, the, the signature of inorganic source or 
organic carbon, burial, and vegetation type. So biological processes preferentially take up these lower mass through kinetic fractionation. And if that wasn't confusing enough, it should be noted that it's not always biological and some abiotic processes do the same thing, such as methane from hydrothermal vents, which can be depleted by up to 50%. Yeah. So yeah, these photoferrotrophs, they require sunlight and implies that they have to have lived in, as the name would suggest, the photic zone. Go I figure. I love that, that name. The like, photic? so cool. Yeah. So the photic zone of during earlier, early, early o- earth <laughs> oceans. <laughs> Woo. You know, however, pre goey earth. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> yeah. It lacked an ozone layer and is indicated by that sulfur mass independent fractionation. And it could be just from the lack of oxygen, too, because, right, isn't it an interaction between the the UV I light mean, and you, oxygen? Yeah, I would assume. But, but it can be from, I think, like Knox and Vox. But, anyways, yeah. we don't have to go there. But I have a public service announcement, Mr. Baggins, concerning O3, if you don't mind. So the ozone, yeah. O3. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. Okay. Just remember that ozone is good up high <laughs> bad nearby yes so i mean like if you breathe ozone like it's bad yeah and, and they have so, ozone machines which are awful so you usually use those in like if you had a fire or something to get the smoke yeah like all that out but, but you cannot be in there without you know <laughs> yeah it's uh it's not a good thing but i think like people still use them all the time yeah so. when i used to clean carpets we put ozone machines yeah. in apartments that were kind of that just that <laughs> there were people that would smoke cigarettes all the time yeah dude and I, and I think that you can test that i think that ozone is a byproduct of the Xerox machines, like those big Xerox machines. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So there's a way, like, I want to do it in oceanography where we do a lab where you can put up this paper and test the different levels of ozone and cool. different indoor stuff. So, yeah. Anyways, good up high, bad nearby. I like it. Good point. So, this UV radiation could have had, you know, if you imagine catastrophic effects on any of the unprotected bacterial cells living in that photic zone. So, the problem lies at the heart of the research. Though. Right, right. I get it. Studies propose the Planktonic life could have actually used solutes in the water column as sunscreen against the UV radiation. Uh-huh. One hypothesis, it led to the study on photoferrotrophs to see if precipitating ferric oxyhydroxides. Now, you see, I I think that's actually really cool. Like, yeah. So basically by growing bacterial cultures or the presence and absence of the UV light is what you're saying. And then the, the ferrous iron, they could study if this had an effect or lack thereof. In a matter of fact, it showed conclusively the following. So you, you had UV radiation negatively affects the growth of bacteria cultures in the absence of ferrous iron. Uh-huh. And then two, the presence of precipitating ferric oxyhydrides nanoparticles, the UV radiation had little effect on bacterial growth. What? So yeah. so what this does is that, that I think that it provides insight and a way to study how iron oxidizing bacterial colonies could have survived in the shallow ocean of the early earth. Right. So were there any, I guess, things of note like errors or anything because yeah. i know it's kind of <laughs> yeah you're assuming a lot of things right so because we can't really reproduce exact conditions right and the study no noted, you're telling me that <laughs> we, <laughs> we know what the earth was like yeah exactly uh, proxies it's like, yeah yeah and it you know it noted that the bacterial cells were in close proximity to the nanoparticle minerals produced although the cell surfaces remained you know mostly free from precipitates see that i that i think that's interesting so i i guess further research would i I guess really want to look into determining I would think that the the suspension dynamics of the ferric nanoparticles because 
I'm a nerd. (laughs) And then I guess really their long-term efficacy as sunscreen in really an open marine environment, right? Because I guess this was very controlled and we know how big the ocean is and just the dynamic variables that it could be, especially with the stratification is what I'm thinking of. But I know it's the photic zone, but okay. Yeah, I mean, but how does that? I don't, I don't, yeah. Yeah, so another thing we should think about, you know, is some pre-GOE. <laughs> We're the great oxidation event, right? Oh, is there a say that right? Yeah, great no, oxygen. you did. I said it. I misspoke yeah. earlier. Okay. I think I said great oxygenated, oxygenation earth. Yeah. <laughs> I think I did I say know. that earlier. Anyways. Well, yeah, so the, you know, the pre-GOE chemical sedimentary sequences that shows evidence for primary to early diagenetic hematite deposited below the wave base, as well as BIF deposition associated with deep water stromatolite free carbonates suggesting so that basically the deposition was below the photic zone yeah so you you know what they say don't you no yes maybe <laughs> one should always proceed with caution when interpreting the <laughs> precipitation mechanisms in biffs yeah i mean <laughs> who doesn't know that yeah Right. It's snarky, right? The snarky biffs. So because what you just said, I mean, I, I, to me, it implies that the, the ferrous irons never really reached the photic zone in the first place, which might exclude really maybe the, the <laughs> phototrophs, the ferrotrophs, the photo ferrotrophs altogether. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's what I thought, you know, too, but uh, yeah, of course there's always a but, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, or, you know, there's also increasing evidence for whiffs of oxygen in pre-goey oceans. So wafting of that good good to get whiffs <laughs> forms biffs? Yeah, well, maybe. So <laughs> the wafting, Say that 10 times. I feel like we're Dr. Seuss now. <laughs> we are. The wafting whiffs to make biffs. <laughs> yeah, it, it could suggest that microoxic chemolithoautotrophs. <laughs> Say that 10 times fast. Chemolithoautotrophs. Yeah. Okay, so it doesn't nest- Hold on, time out, time out. I know- so for all of you out there, I'm going for Halloween. I'm going as a chemolitho autotroph. <laughs> Excellent. Yep. All right. Okay. I'll be a you, photon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, so the the whiffs we're talking about, it, yeah. it, it could it doesn't necessarily though require sunlight. Yeah. Um, and so therefore we wouldn't need protection from UV radiation. So and it could have played a major role in the biff deposition. Yeah. So if you don't have protection, you yeah. get biffs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. So basically, point is, any research done on the role of bacteria in BIF deposition, it illustrates this this point that studies should always exercise caution when studying BIF occurrences, you know, as the characteristics and as in many ways in, in any part of geology, depositional settings will vary. Right. It's like yeah. you... You know, one should always proceed with caution. That's what they always say. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> yeah. So oh. it, it, it gets back to... <laughs> Hold on. What if we make... <laughs> business cards that don't say anything except that. <laughs> what the hell? Just, you know what they always say. Yeah. <laughs> when I, studying BIF occurrences. <laughs> but but I, I think overall, <laughs> overarching, it gets back to the point that this one size fits all quote air air quotes, right? These yeah. depositional models are highly unlikely. And and besides their importance with regard to the life on early Earth, BIFs also are of great economic importance as the mm. majority of super large iron ore deposits formed from precursor <laughs> BIFs. Uh, always with the economics, you pro-capitalist economist. Well, it's like I always say, being poor is oh. a problem. 
personal oh choice. Wow. <laughs> right? Work harder, but don't pay any mind to me being rich because you too someday could be rich. We just have to get rich. Therefore, remember, taxes are bad and distribution of wealth is not important. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps and don't ask questions. But anyways. <laughs> wow. Snarky. These are these are uh, James the geologist views. Please do not does not I, reflect. The, it's a caricature of yeah. all the things wrong with capitalism. Yeah. But anyway, so these high grade ores within Biff sometimes you know they have greater than sixty percent weight of iron, which is quite significant. So it's not yeah. this little oh we have this trace amounts, <laughs> but it consists mostly of this hematite with significant girthite. Yeah, go with it. So fun story: recent advances have been made in dating the hematite using. Ooh, I would date some hematite. Uh, me too. But I would, uh, it's one of my favorite dating. Well, it uses part of one of my favorite dating regimes and that's uranium thorium. But they also like, they take in, the, it's a ratio with the 21 neon. Yeah. And then uranium thorium and, and helium. And then the other clock is going to be the helium four and helium three radiometric techniques. Right, right. Yeah. So being able to, you know, to time or formation events is of great value. It can then, you know, be correlated to regional geologic events. It leads to the identification of, you know, these larger scale or forming events. Now we're deconstructing reason like chronostratigraphy, but so can yeah. you, so I guess you can radiometric date sedimentary rocks. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So who's the capitalist now? So <laughs> if you're not growing your market, you're a failure. <laughs> I digress. So, so proceed with laying some radiometric dating information on me there, uh, Brian. Yeah, yeah. With pleasure. So the use of the uranium thorium to neon 21 hematite dating is, you know, to delineate between two ore form forming events, um, say at like, you know, 772 and 453 million years old. And that's in the Gogebic iron range. And that's here in the good old US yeah. of A, right? And, I, and that's <laughs> Michigan, I believe, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, you're right. Okay, yeah. And so what's interesting to note was that these ages occur at times of tectonic quiescence in the region. So you can also use helium-4, helium-3 ratios to for spectra inverse modeling. And actually it determines the cooling history of the ore. Yeah. Which is insane, right? They do similar things with zircon, but I'm I'll, I think they use zircon in it. Yeah. Like part yeah. of the, or the, the where like, they're getting cool, it. Yeah. And, yeah. And so, you know, this was used then to interpret the depth of, of ore formation and, and then the erosional rates that happened and unroofing that came with all that Pleistocene glaciation. That's just, dude, geology is so cool. Like oh, we could yeah. take it a million different ways, right? So just so I can nerd out with you, Brian, a little bit. So basically yeah. how that works is that the nuclear production of the neon 21, mm. much like the, the helium four and the uranium and thorium rich minerals, such as your aptite, zircon, which you're yeah. min mentioning, monzonite and titanite can potentially be Sveen. used for, <laughs> you love Sveen, bodies by Brian. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I have that picture on somewhere. So. Uh, the the chrono the the chronometry <laughs> right so and and this is due to the absence of that magnesium twenty four from the accessory minerals of the of interest um, the production of really the the neon twenty one through neutron induced reactions can be neglected and this production only occurs through the reaction of oxygen eighteen right um, using that neon twenty one blah 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 and as the closure temperatures is higher for the neon than the helium this gives a possible insight to the thermal histories of those minerals to what you were saying and uh yeah mm, so good geology good good facts <laughs> the, the facts of the good good yeah <laughs> 
But okay, so basically we can see the, you know, that the need to identify fluid mobilizing events in the region to account for ore formation um, between, you know, we mentioned earlier there was like, I don't remember, it was 700 something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but like they were basically, this one study was able to account for that ore formation between 800 to 400 million years ago. And then, you know, we can also provide a better understanding of the landscape evolution of that region during the Phanerozoic. Yeah, and the new places for study include the the super gene enriched iron ores from the the Griqualand, West region of <laughs> South Africa, that are that are associated with the regional erosional unconformity that transects numerous units within the Transva- Transvaal group <laughs> supergroup. Yeah, the, the Transvaal group <laughs> supergroup is uh. Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> yep. but it, it's I'm really <laughs> the yeah so that <laughs> super group it's uh, it has great geological significance and it you know among other paleoenvironmental events mainly the the GOI. fun facts let's hear it well yeah so determining the de- depositional age of the, the transvaal supergroup it's been problematic basically to con- because of contradicting ages determined for volcanic units dikes and then also carbonates in numerous studies which i think is really weird that they're uh, contradicting, but whatever. So calculating the age of the iron ores, in turn, the age of the regional unconformity, that basically could provide further geochronological constraints. See, all these big, fancy geo blah, blah, blah. So, but furthermore, yeah. that 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 helium-4, helium-3 spectra inverse bottling could be applied in those regions where the, really, the iron ore formations on craton margins was initiated by collisional tectonics. So with the, with really, with the cooling history of the ore providing that post collisional thermal evolution of said region yeah and the dating of hematite it could Man, also I date add, hematite yeah i think i think we need to introduce you yeah yeah um horny for hematite <laughs> <laughs> oh my god another card it's just horny for hematite <laughs> yeah uh <laughs> but yeah if you know hematite dating it, it can also add a lot of value when we study the, you know, the pristine BIFs and the occurrence of what is interpreted to be primary to, you know, early diagenetic dusty hematite in the pre goey chemical sedimentary rocks. That's still, you know, as as BIFs do. Yeah. Ongoing debates. Yeah. And especially with regards to the redox processes of that free molecular oxygen, I believe at those time intervals or something like that. So being able to get the accurate ages for that dusty hematite, um, it could determine whether it's crystallization falls within known depositional age ranges or, you know, significantly post-states deposition thereby, you know, that could resolve a key issue related to the BIFs. Yeah. So, and I really think in addition, um, the banded iron formations are used as stratigraphic marker beds in many sedimentary sequences mm-hmm. and diagenetic hematite ages can really be used to add further depositional age constraints like you were talking about. But really further refinement will be required to minimize sample dilution and contamination due to possible lower hematite 
wide abundances in the Biffs um, when compared to the the ore itself. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to say this. This could go on for days yeah, you, or another two billion years. <laughs> with the two L's. Because you saw how like we went from like, we went from like the how Biffs were formed to this kind of capitalistic. Well, no, we went into We, we touched on that, but ores, yeah. And I mean, when you get into ores and assays and man, it, it gets really complicated, but I'm glad that we talked about, because that's a big, the new push is, you know, dating these and that conversation and, you know, what happened after they were deposited. And we have these isotopic clocks that, you know, get reset. Yeah. And so you, there's a little, there's a trail. And so we could go. I know really deep, I, we could, um, but we, I feel like it was, it was all right. Yeah, no, no, I, I liked it. So hopefully, you know, the listeners got a better understanding of life and times of Biffs. Yeah, the life and times of yeah. Biff. The spiffy Biff. Yeah. But, um, you know, I hope it also opened new ways to imagine it's it's really is a unique lithology from many moons ago. Just the whole idea. Like, yeah. I, you know what I'm saying? Like, where it was this nice, simple kind of like blah, 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 blah. But then you just see like whole research being done just to like all <laughs> what we talked about tonight. Like, yeah. it's just, it's mind numbing. Absolutely. And not mind numbing, but it is just kind of like overwhelming because I learned a lot in this and it's just. Yeah, same. Pow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm honestly still digesting it a bit. It's, yeah. Uh, so yeah. if you were just listening to that, um, you should listen to it again. Yeah. And again. And again. No, but it is cool. <laughs> so. I wish I didn't cut off so abruptly. I wish I would have done like a little right. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, yeah, like just got bam. Uh so we could just just talk a little bit. Like uh yeah. the only thing new musically I had a show. I, I feel yeah. like I rocked out more, but you just did. I, I rocked out a lot more, but just the overall it was just kind of a disappointing kind of like I don't know why. Just the sound wasn't. Oh, that we did talk about that. The sound that wasn't, wasn't your, your fault. It wasn't. I bet it could have been. I, I screwed no. up a lot more, but I was bouncy a lot more. It just was. Uh, the sound was um, muffled. Yeah, like something about it, and I don't know what he what he's doing. I don't know, but, but maybe it's just whenever I get my uh, I my new my new head in, I and, can't I'm, wait and I'm playing. For, I'm just gonna. I'm I'm gonna obnoxiously play a full stack. <laughs> For no for no reason That's at cool, all though I like that it's just yeah it's punk rock but it's not punk rock yeah no what we were just talking about like yeah so the the podcast is growing so just yeah the, it is um and I. I wonder if we, I mean, we've talked about doing some merch. Even. Oh yeah. That's what we're going to. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So, um, I know we've had a couple, I've had a couple of people independently of like, uh, Instagram, like reach out to me being like, y'all need to do merch. Yeah. So I do think that, uh, a big thing coming up is that we're going to have all sorts of t-shirts and whatever you want yeah. with geology on the rocks or G O T R. Yeah. I yeah. think it's going to be awesome. And maybe we make some horny for hematite. <laughs> horny, horny for hematite. <laughs> yes. I'll make, uh, do I have a drawing of it? <laughs> kind of, uh, yeah. yeah. But anyways. Did you say botryoidal? Or, that's what I say, but is it betroidal? I say botryoidal. I don't it sounds know. cooler like that. Like how you say, uh, what, how do you say subaqueous? I say subaqueous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know it's subaqueous. Yeah, I don't know. I just Sabbaticals. Like 
<laughs> sabbaticals, testicles, wallet, and watch. But yeah. yeah, no. Um, you have anything coming up musically, Brian? We're trying to book some stuff. We, I think we have something in Dallas maybe on the 26th, but we're writing a new record and it's getting weird. Getting weird? Yeah. So you- we're trying not to just be this like, oh, we'll like play some like chill stuff and then we go really huge at the end. You know, we're, everyone does that in our genre and we're trying to step back from that think more thematic um, and having more motifs that show up here and there in the record. Cause we're writing a, like a sci-fi tale. Okay. So I think, I think just the whole, that's, that's such a Brian <laughs> band thing. Yeah. A motif. Yeah. A motif. That should be a band name. The motifs. Yeah. If it's not, I'm just going to be, I'm going to take it. Maybe for, that should be your album name. I don't know. It's like, we have all this stuff with like artifacts and portals and time travel. Okay. We're getting weird. Yeah, so <laughs> no, I get it. No, because uh, yeah, no, I I feel like uh, I finally just have I'll maybe learned in my head how to just like manage like the or compartmentalize different things in my life because I know for the past year or so like I, it's I've been really I guess stagnant in my writing. And then, you know, so the, the band, we haven't really been writing new music. Yeah. So, I mean, like, but, right, so, but I have been starting to write music, writing me being more creative in my approach to it. And, like, I started writing songs. So, like, uh, as the band, we're starting to play new songs. That's good. Yeah. I liked the new one at the show. Yeah, well, thank yeah. you. Yeah, it was really I mean, good. it. I with that the like the the first time that we had practiced it all together was the night before. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So it wasn't really like the the greatest. I could do, but no one could tell. You know. Well, maybe. I mean, I could do this. Let's see here. Maybe just to give a, a little tease. Yeah. Just because I don't know. What we. Yeah, the drums right here should be. But anyways, yeah, that's. Man, I I kind of want to share one with you. Yeah, do it. Let's. let's... But I don't know how to do this. How do I? Oh shit! I, let me make sure it's the right one. Oh yeah. This oh. Is are you, gets, yeah, you're. Can I just like? Yeah, send are you? It to you? Are you? No, are you hooked up to the Bluetooth? Oh, I could do that. So why you do that? Let me see. Tell me what you think about this. This part right here. Melodies come singing in. Anyways, oh let let me let me do this. Let me get your uh Yeah. I don't want to get you in trouble, but we're gonna Yeah, we'll we'll do a tiny bit of it. I'll tell you when to to pause it. Because this is really like 
we're still in the process of writing this, but this would be the second song on the new record. And it's the hero or the nomad as we're calling him. It's his like, he finally is like, it's basically like, what is going on? be a sick light show to it though where it's like pulsing we're looking to do a little bit of that maybe good crunchy oh yeah get that if you if you have the if you're listening to it in stereo like the left yeah. ear anyways where it's like yeah yeah this is, we just mic stuff at practice so it's like no i mean you heard uh, the the thing i was writing was uh on, on, MIDI. on midi yeah Okay. Yeah. I dude, I dig it. I feel like but dude, yeah, no, I like the it is I get what you're getting with the the portals like the Yeah. And we're going to try to make like the portal sound that comes back. So the songs won't be like, "Oh, you know, this is just this song." Like there may be a melody that shows up on the record four times in different songs, just oh, different ways. So so that's cerebral. Yeah, yeah. I that's that's what's up, dude. It's no, really like I, I like that. If you could somehow put it all, which, which I'm sure you will do that. I dig that though. I want to, I don't know how to do the pedals like y'all do pedals. I always try to, but it never. It'll sound sick. Dude. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah, no. So, but anyways, I guess if you haven't been listening to the very end of our episodes, the super cuts at the end are the best. <laughs> did you get, did you get to the last yes. one? Yes. <laughs> um, 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 uh, uh, uh. Uh, uh. (laughs) but so i guess until next time let us remind you to be cool stay tuned and keep it on on the the rocks rocks. oh no yep cheers dude cheers i always love this stuff oh yeah that's episode 40 in the books over the hill Uh, uh. over the biff what was it? Horny for hematite. You know, horny. Yeah, I'm horny for hematite at each other. <laughs> or is it FE304? Now, F- hematite's FE304. Yeah. Magnetites. Um, Whatever. It's one of the two. Yeah. One's got a... So, the plague... Ta- pl- <laughs> my God. <laughs> the... The or more than <laughs> <laughs> the oh no no god the yeah so it might it might yeah so the 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 yeah, good, yeah, that yeah. good good you know okay. what I'm saying some of that good yeah. good the I don't know yeah I think so the clear drop uh bomb yeah because then I gotta stop holding the so no but when that happens so but when that but then what happened um yeah. 
Um, every time, yeah. So, uh, I th- okay, yeah. The it'll undergrow, <laughs> undergrow. <laughs> Carbonates in Biffs have depleted car or the the carbon delta thirteen. <laughs> yeah, the the delta carbon thirteen. Yeah, yeah. So Biffs have depleted carbon. The de- Biffs have delta. <laughs> Biffs have <laughs> dude, you gotta this has gotta be the end. Out <laughs> <Dude>. <laughs> yeah, right. So I uh, right. Yeah, right. Back to a photic zone of during early earth early early o- earth oceans. <laughs> What's going on with our words so tonight? The 